It was a hot night in early summer when the police arrived in South Los Angeles, coming down Central Avenue and other roads to round up and arrest their targets in mass coordinated sweeps. Sweeps that would put scores of African Americans in jail for vagrancy and resisting arrest, with an added beating if they fought back. Along with the cops, a gang of hundreds of young white men surged down Central looking to attack anyone who stood in their way. But they were surprised to find the black people of South L.A. stood their ground. Amassed in the hundreds, a small army of neighborhood residents refused to let the white men in uniform pass. They faced off with them, battled with them, and pushed them back, and even fought off the cops who had been arresting them for years. At one point, 125 black residents fought with rocks and bottles against the clubs and fists of the invaders and attacked a streetcar that carried them in. And in the end, the black residents drove them out. They forced them back downtown and kept them out of their neighborhood for now, as long as they could. But the battle wouldn't end this night in June 1943, when black men in zoot suits fought in the streets with white sailors and L.A. cops during World War II. It was only a ceasefire in a long war, one which would erupt again in a much more incendiary battle a generation later in the very same place, a place called Watts. My name is J.D. Dickey. I'm a writer exploring the politics, religion, military history, and culture of the United States. And this is one of the most important threads of our national fabric. American violence. Two years before the Zoot Suit riots, President Franklin Roosevelt signed Executive Order 8802, which barred racial discrimination in the defense industry. This order, along with a desperate labor shortage in wartime industries, helped lead 70,000 African Americans to migrate from the southern United States to southern Los Angeles, doubling the town's black population in only a few years. These newcomers were part of a wave of 400,000 who left the South and headed west during the decade. Here, they found plentiful work in the defense industry, especially in the shipyards, where 15% of the workforce was black. They were employed in solid, working-class jobs that offered decent salaries and plentiful hours for as long as the war lasted. But by 1945, that war ended, and so did their opportunities. Waves of layoffs followed the defeat of Germany and Japan, and most of the jobs that remained were held by whites. African-American men formerly employed in the shipyards and factories now received pink slips, with few good working-class jobs available to them. What remained were the low-paid occupations they could have had generations before, as garbage collectors, custodians, and the like. But even those jobs were often in short supply, as industry after industry was closed to them due to discriminatory hiring practices and union rules that quietly, or even openly, barred their doors to them. They soon came to realize that this West Coast city was not so different from the Old South after all. The deputy mayor, Orville Caldwell, spoke hostile words in public against them, saying, quote, These Southern Negroes are a serious problem. And he wasn't alone in his contempt of African Americans. City leaders said much the same thing, whether in private or sometimes in public. Looking at the situation, the director of the city's Urban League said, Racism in Los Angeles was becoming on par with Texas and Oklahoma, states that had seen shocking massacres of black people only a few decades before. 
Of course, over its history, LA had been the site of attacks and massacres of minority groups too. Immigrants from Mexico and China had faced the brunt of it, but most residents recalled these attacks none too well, especially if they were more than a few decades old. For city leaders and boosters had been relentlessly whitewashing LA's past for any hint of brutality and bloodshed for many years, and by the 1950s, few residents knew much about its heritage beyond the old standbys of Mission Padres, Spanish ranchos, and red roof tiled buildings. But no matter how hard they tried, the city boosters were finding it increasingly difficult to hide the inequality, the racism, and the violence that minorities faced. It was obvious wherever you cared to look. For one thing, L.A. was rigidly segregated. One index marked it as having worse conditions than even New York City and Washington, D.C., with a laundry list of urban ills that went along with this segregation. White residents insulated themselves in their own enclaves, resisting socializing, commingling, living next to, or working with black people, much less dating or marrying outside of their race, which were taboo. In Hollywood, studio writers and directors portrayed black people as cheerful, simple, and subservient, and the production code strictly forbade interracial relationships and any suggestion of racial conflict that could not be simply and easily resolved. It also continued to present white actors in blackface, a holdover from the minstrel shows of the 19th century, which had the effect of not only insulting black audiences, but kept minority actors out of the industry to boot. It also enforced a color line in the movie business that was just as rigid and unyielding as the color line in Los Angeles itself. Almost as soon as they had come to L.A., black migrants found themselves confined to a narrow section of the metropolis with white hostility and government policy keeping them from living anywhere else. In 1960, black Angelinos were only about one in 14 residents of the city, but in South L.A., they were more than half. That made for a half million people living in the swath of neighborhoods running due south of downtown, along Central Avenue, down to Willowbrook and Compton, a 10-mile stretch of segregation as bad as any city in the Northeast. Around these areas, white neighborhoods and chartered cities kept black residents out by using legal and illegal tactics, and occasionally bragged about how segregated they were. One of them, Linwood, even called itself the friendly Caucasian city an unintentional oxymoron. Within the zone of segregation, the district with some of the worst conditions was Watts. The poorest and most recent migrants from the South found their way to this neighborhood of 35,000 people, a place Eldridge Cleaver would later call a place of shame. Not for the attitudes of its residents, but for the discrimination and cruelty those residents had to face. Unemployment was legion here, with few decent jobs to be had, to go along with LA's most decrepit and underfunded schools, most dilapidated infrastructure, and poorest access to healthcare, with tuberculosis outbreaks happening here much more frequently than they did in the rest of the city. But the most dire conditions were in housing. Homes in Watts were old, some were shambling, and two-thirds of them were owned by absentee landlords. And those landlords, usually white outsiders, had little interest in repairing or upgrading the houses to decent, habitable condition, and made considerable money overcharging their tenants for substandard accommodations. Watts residents protested to their landlords and took their case to City Hall, but time and again their concerns were ignored. This left them with few options. 
While some could relocate elsewhere in South L.A., few could escape the geographic boundaries the city had set for them. Since the 1920s, the Federal Housing Administration had been encouraging the practice of redlining, which kept African Americans within the boundaries of color-coded maps using various methods. Savings and loans refused to lend money to black buyers seeking houses outside of South L.A. and made restrictive covenants in white neighborhoods a necessity for new construction in those neighborhoods. These contracts stated that the buyer was bound not to rent or sell his house to anyone of the Negro race, and often restricted Latinos, Jews, and Asians as well. Although declared unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court in 1948, these covenants persisted for decades afterward. All these restrictions made conditions in Watts and surrounding neighborhoods decline even further. On a 1965 visit to L.A., Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. saw the extreme segregation of the city and the wealth and comfort of the Anglo neighborhoods that surrounded the poorer black districts. As he said, Watts is closer to the affluence of our society and further away from it than any other American community. But for all of these problems of poverty and inequality in South L.A., the one thing that inflamed residents the most was the hostile presence of the Los Angeles Police Department. It was led by William Parker, a man who had risen through the ranks to become chief in 1950 and took over a department rife with corruption and incompetence. Parker resolved to reform the LAPD with a new sense of professionalism and extensive training modeled on his own experience as a captain in World War II. His LAPD incorporated a new approach to street crime in which suspects would be relentlessly pursued using modern tactics, corruption would be rooted out, and enforcement of the law would be targeted and precise. That was the idea, anyway. Parker promoted this image of the LAPD through editorial control over the series Dragnet, which ran throughout the 1950s and established his department in America's living rooms as a model of order and propriety with the humorless Jack Webb portraying Sergeant Joe Friday, a straight-arrow cop who enforced the law fairly. The show did well, and the department took 6% of its profits, with Parker having script control to make sure his troopers were seen in the best and most heroic light. In practice, however, the LAPD was the very model of police brutality. Unlike the dull and sensible Sergeant Friday, Chief Parker was a cynic and a misanthrope, he often declared that, quote, man is a predatory animal who must be restrained, and gave lectures on the topic describing the base character of the citizenry his department policed. He was suspicious of anyone outside the LAPD, as his reforms took the old beat cops off the street and put them behind the wheel of squad cars. He removed the community connection that some cops had forged with citizens, and replaced it with a theory of domination as a method of law enforcement. This removed the personal, ground-level approach to policing and instead enshrined a new model, with threats and harsh punishment as the tools of the trade, and black people in South L.A. the targets. Like Parker himself, L.A. cops sometimes used racial slurs to address African Americans, and those who spoke up in response risked a beating. The LAPD harassed and intimidated interracial couples and sent countless black men to the 77th Street Precinct House on suspicion of crimes, real or imagined. 
They arrested blacks for crimes like gambling at up to 10 times the rate of white people and routinely used brutal tactics to coerce suspects into arrest or confession. Some of these included bending fingers backward, tightening handcuffs to cut off blood flow, slamming heads against curbs and car doors, and beating people relentlessly with batons. Indeed, residents of South LA had regular encounters with the LAPD that were hostile, humiliating, and sometimes deadly. The head of the 77th Precinct, Frank Beeson, openly preached white supremacy and black inferiority and claimed that civil rights protesters were communists and saw the minorities he interacted with largely as criminals. Others in the department joined the John Birch Society and other far-right groups, with the society alone numbering some 2,000 members in blue uniforms. Few of these racist attitudes went without notice, and in 1964 alone, the LAPD faced some 400 complaints about brutality and misbehavior. Of these, only one in ten cases was ever investigated, and guilty officers were rarely punished. Parker refused to allow civilian oversight of his department, preferring instead to run his force without restraint or hindrance. In response, some critics in South L.A. compared the LAPD to an occupying army. Three-quarters of black respondents in one poll viewed Parker negatively, with almost as much animosity reserved for his greatest champion, Mayor Sam Yorty. Yorty was the perfect mayor to do Parker's bidding, never questioning the police chief, giving him whatever support he needed, and fighting his battles in politics the same way Parker fought minorities on the street. Yorty despised reformers and civil rights activists, whom he saw as little better than communists. He spoke out against desegregation and brought populism and race-baiting in L.A. to a new level. Most of all, he blithely ignored the concerns of South L.A. and let the area sink deeper into poverty and destitution. Following the mayor's lead, racial attitudes among Anglos hardened, as they would give their greatest affront yet to the black community. The Rumford Fair Housing Act was a state law that had passed in 1963 to fight discrimination in housing, forbidding landlords from denying accommodation to people based on their race or religion, among several other categories. Within months of the act's passage, though, angry opponents of the measure organized to stop it and wrote a ballot measure to rescind the act and allow landlords once again to discriminate against whoever they felt like. The longtime nemesis of immigrants and minorities in the city, the Los Angeles Times, endorsed the measure, as did many top white officials. Governor Pat Brown, however, saw the ballot measure as a blatant attempt to encode racism into California law, which he saw as being on par with Mississippi and Alabama. The state attorney general seconded that opinion, calling it a segregation initiative that sugarcoats bigotry. But despite such condemnations, the measure passed easily on Election Day, with two-thirds of L.A.'s residents voting for it. The federal government, in response, swiftly cut off all housing funds to California, and black Angelinos were sickened, if not terribly surprised. Martin Luther King Jr. would later say, California, by this callous act, voted for ghettos. Then came 1965, and the outrages only increased. From January to June, the LAPD killed 65 people, mostly in South L.A., and 52 were minority victims who were either unarmed or shot in the back. Almost none of these cases were prosecuted. 
Black residents followed by protesting their mistreatment and rallied at the federal building and demonstrated on college campuses over five days in March. They demanded fair treatment from the LAPD and a lessening of the military tactics that Parker used. They staged protests against Mayor Sam Yorty's blocking of federal anti-poverty money to Los Angeles and condemned the race-baiting and demonization of black people in the city and the ongoing discrimination in housing, health care, education, and just about every social service that mattered. But despite their pleas and demands, nothing changed. Discrimination existed in law and practice, and in racial relations, L.A. sunk to the level of the southern cities from which so many black migrants had once fled. And then came August 11th. It was the hottest day of the summer yet, a high of 92 degrees and South Angelinos out on their porches or in the streets, anything to get out of houses without pools or air conditioning. Marquette Fry is traveling in his mother's car with his younger brother Ronald who's just gotten out of the Air Force. On the way home, 7 p.m., Marquette runs a stoplight. A police officer sees him and puts on his flashers. But this isn't an LAPD cop, but California Highway Patrol. The CHP aren't well-liked, but their reputation isn't nearly as bad as the LAPD's. But still, when Marquette can't produce his license, things escalate. Two more CHP officers arrive on the scene, and they start to interrogate him and his brother, what they're up to, where they've been, whether they've been drinking. The traffic stop is now center stage in the neighborhood. A crowd watches, just waiting to see what the cops will do next. And then Mrs. Fry shows up. Marquette's mother is mad at her son for taking her car out, for getting pulled over. But it doesn't take long before both she and her sons are arguing with the cops. They say they've done nothing wrong and they just want to go home. The crowd grows and gets closer knowing how things like this usually end up. And several minutes later, it does. She's too close and the CHP cops get angry. They grab her and twist her arm behind her back. She cries out. The people watch in shock how this middle-aged woman is getting pushed around, abused by the law. People scream at the officers. Let them go. Get out of our neighborhood. Now there are hundreds in the streets, maybe a thousand, and the drama hits the half-hour mark. The cops see the crowd rising up, and they panic. They draw their guns and point them as even more officers arrive on the scene. Then, before anyone can stop them, they shove the fries into a squad car and flee the scene as fast as they can. This does not stop the turmoil. More and more friends, neighbors, onlookers surge into the streets. Now there are more than 1,500 people inflamed by hurt and rage. Down on 118th Street, another crowd appears, demonstrating, protesting, angry over the arrest of the Fries and everything else that's wrong in South L.A. Eighty more CHP officers appear, riding their motorcycles over the sidewalks to hem the people in. In so doing, they nearly run over several kids and only draw more people to the scene. The crowd's now throwing rocks and bottles, chunks of wood and concrete. Things get out of hand, the CHP can't control it, and the troopers speed away. Minutes pass. The ugly rumors blossom. Stories of CHP, LAPD, what happened to the fries, the chaos on 118th Street, other shocks and outrages. 2,000 people mass on Avalon Boulevard and meet the L.A. police, and a frenzy breaks out, with batons and clubbing and beating. Down on the avenues, whites in their cars get a hail of rocks and bottles, and so do the news vans. More confrontations erupt. 
People dragged from their cars and hit. The reporters see it. The press films it. A pregnant black woman gets savaged by the police, fueling more outrage. It turns out she isn't pregnant, but the story fits the scene. People's mothers and sisters are in the fray, too, battling the police with their sons and husbands. But most South Angelinos, most black people, just watch at a distance or on TV. But they know worse things are on the way. They can smell the violence, the smell of burning. August 12th, the next morning, a supermarket takes flame on Avalon Boulevard. More fires break out at department stores, liquor stores, markets. Most of them are owned by whites who don't live in the district. Looters break into businesses, taking food, clothing, appliances. They destroy their debt and credit records. They charge out of the stores with their goods, silhouetted against a backdrop of burning buildings. The LAPD comes out in force to finish what the CHP started. They're on the move, clubbing and arresting people, firing weapons, guarding stores, finding looters, guarding firefighters, hunting down firebugs. But the masses in the street keep growing, rising, coming from all directions. And the cops are outnumbered, without a plan or strategy, no way to keep a riot from spreading. The news media hits the same notes, hour after hour. Stores looted, blacks throwing rocks, reporters attacked, a news van on fire. They tell the Marquette Fry story from the night before, but ignore the cause of the burning, the terrible state of South LA, the brutality of the LAPD. Instead, reporters spin rumors of gang members buying guns and ammo to storm white neighborhoods, tell stories of Anglos running from a mob, warn viewers the fires are coming. The media feeds the turmoil. Black leaders try to control it. They hold a meeting in Athens Park. Politicians, clergy, adults, kids, all looking to stanch the violence and make the city pay attention to what's going on in South L.A. while it's in the spotlight. Neighbors stand up and offer their take on the trouble, not just the arson and the looting, but with the root cause, racism and inequality. Some try to mend fences. Some are worried. Some are angry. One voice speaks up, a young man, upset at how black people are treated in the city. He says the violence will come to Beverly Hills and the suburbs if something isn't done. He's just one voice of many in Athens Park, but with the media here, they pretend he speaks for everyone. Over and over, TV news replays his threat to spread violence over the city. They gin up their white viewers, make them think Beverly Hills will be on fire. The reporters manufacture a lie that Athens Park is a rage session against white people, and a race war may be on the way. This angle sells papers and draws viewers, but it fuels more distrust between black and white, city and community, citizens and cops. The police vow to bring the chaos under control, but they don't understand it, can't control it, have no idea of the damage. An hour after midnight, early morning of August 13th, Rioters are spread out over a three-mile radius, and looters take over the business district of Watts around 103rd Street. The city sets up an emergency control center to monitor the violence and inform the LAPD of where to go and what to do. But the center is overwhelmed. Too many reports, too little information, and no way to tell true from false. The Lieutenant Governor Glenn Anderson is now in charge of the state, with Governor Pat Brown out on vacation. Anderson lives only a few miles from the fringe of the violence. From his house, he sees the horizon lit up by fire in the distance, and he wants to know what the police are doing to manage it. They keep telling him, the situation is under control. A perimeter has been established. We have it all in hand. But Anderson doesn't buy it. As dawn breaks, he demands more answers, but doesn't get them. 
After a few more hours, Anderson calls up the National Guard. The Guard won't be on patrol for another 12 hours, though, and that makes for a half day for the city to keep burning. National chains like Safeway and Sears Roebuck take flame. Each has a reputation for not hiring black people. Smaller stores around 103rd Street also face the torch. Any place where a white outsider owns the building or mistreats his customers. Black businesses put up signs saying Blood Brother and the like to protect them from the torch. But the rioters don't need reminding. Most know just who they're after and who they aren't. Schools, libraries, churches, post offices, private homes all escape damage. Shop owners and landlords get the brunt of it. Some of their property is looted but still standing. Other property becomes bonfire material. 41 buildings burn in the center of Watts alone. The LAPD has no handle on the violence other than beating and shooting at people. But William Parker doesn't let that stop him. He appears on TV to feed the news media his own spin, inaccurate numbers, wildly off-base claims. He announces where the rioters are and what they're up to. He says gang members and hooligans are marching on the city, but his troopers have everything under control. TV reporters get access to the emergency control center and get FaceTime with Parker himself. The chief does his best Jack Webb. This is Dragnet 1965, with even bigger ratings. Twenty reporters scurry around the center, filing reports on the spot and repeating as fact whatever comes out of Parker in his press office. It turns into a media circus, with camera crews filming from inside the chief's office and the chief himself launching into diatribes about the state of affairs in the city and with black people in general. He says black people should have no grievance against the LAPD and says police brutality is a canard. He refuses to meet with protesters or community leaders. He compares policing in South LA to fighting the Vietnam War. He blusters that we are on top and they are on the bottom. And he says those who break the law are behaving like, quote, monkeys in the zoo. His deputy chief later adds that black cops have an advantage because they can't be seen at night. All the racist rhetoric distracts viewers from the LAPD's own failings. On the street, the department lacks PA systems or bullhorns for crowd control. It has few radio transmitters, and cops have to listen to a news station on transistor radios to find out what's burning and where they should go. But these problems don't stop Parker. He brags about how dominant his troopers are. He stretches credibility so much that he outrages LA's only state senator, Tom Reese. This politician wants access to the control room, but Parker's guards deny him entrance since he's not a reporter. He sneaks in anyway, and on live TV shoots down Parker's claim that the LAPD has everything in hand, and the chief's lie that the lieutenant governor has refused to call out the National Guard. He says the chief ought to be controlling violence in the streets instead of mugging for the cameras. But the LAPD is helpless to stop the fires and they consume a wide swath of South L.A. during the afternoon and night of August 13th. But how could the violence spread so rapidly? TV reporters say the reason is a stampede of rioters, burning and attacking everything in sight. Yet in reality, these rioters are organized and coordinated. They watch TV reports and listen to the radio to find out where the LAPD is and what it's doing. They monitor police channels to get information on deployments and disrupt those channels when they can. Some looters wear the clothing of store employees to send police in the wrong direction or call in false reports to lead them astray. On the streets, 
Arsonists use hand signals to show what neighborhood they're from. One finger for Watts, two for Compton, three for Willowbrook. They burn buildings and prevent firefighters from reaching them or ambush the cops when they arrive to confront them. They store supplies of rocks, bottles, and guns in critical places so weapons are always at hand, even if they're chased into a different neighborhood. They fire guns at helicopters and surround officers in squad cars when they have them outnumbered or lie in wait to attack them until they build up their forces. These are not the methods of crazy people. They're the tactics of guerrilla warfare. City officials may call it a riot spread by a lawless mob. Some residents of South L.A. may call it a rebellion or an uprising. But the term that most fits what's happening in Watts is a civil insurrection. And now the guerrilla army on the ground will face a much stronger foe, and one trained in actual military combat the 10,000 troops of the California National Guard. The Guard deploys on the evening of August 13th and builds up its forces to patrol the city and fight whatever outbreaks of arson and looting the LAPD can't handle, which is just about all of them. The troops patrol in jeeps with mounted machine guns and make for a menacing sight against an apocalyptic backdrop of flames and anarchy, the city now a war zone. By the next day, black smoke and smog cover much of South L.A., air traffic is diverted, and 200 buildings are on fire. Entire blocks are carbonized, turning into charcoal alleys, as some say, with a few lone black-owned businesses standing here and there. The focus of the violence is Central Avenue and 103rd Street, though few commercial strips in the area escape damage. The city imposes a curfew on South L.A., and anyone who violates it is arrested or shot at. LAPD cops are angry they've lost control of the streets, and after Deputy Chief Roger Murdoch takes a bullet to the abdomen while arresting suspects, the department is ready to take revenge. And so some people who steal goods from department stores or furniture outlets now pay for their theft with their lives. Few of them are found with any weapons. Meanwhile, Chief Parker continues his media spectacle at the command center, but the LAPD is no longer the focus of media attention. The National Guard grows its forces to 12,400 troops, and reporters tell their viewers the military might be the only thing preventing South L.A. from burning down entirely. The edge of the violence comes to within four miles of Anglo neighborhoods, and that drives people into a panic. Gun store sales increase by 500%, with only 2% of those sales made by black people. Ultra-right groups like the John Birch Society and the Minutemen arm themselves for combat, and more fanatical groups go even further. The so-called Christian Defense League and various extremists acquire caches of weapons like guns, rockets, and flak jackets, all in preparation for a race war. But the real war is not being fought between whites in the suburbs and blacks in the city but between the residents of South L.A. and the police and military. And in that war, most of the casualties are black. On the night of August 13th, some 300 people of color find their way to the emergency room at L.A. County General Hospital. 3,300 beds are available, but 80% are already filled by the sick and injured, the dying and near dead. Smaller hospitals like Oak Park and Bon Air also see a surge of cases, with people suffering from burns, gunshots, and wounds from broken glass, since most of the streets and sidewalks are filled with debris. At County General, the staff are on edge, working hard and long. 
The majority of them are black, and most live in or near Watts. They're literally seeing their neighbors and community members arriving in ambulances, which never seem to stop coming. By the end of the day, August 14th, the majority of people shot who find their way to hospitals are not rioters or arsonists, but people who have violated curfew. The toll of the insurrection is steep, even excruciating. On days when the temperature tops 97 degrees, active fires consumed entire business districts, especially in the center of Watts. Military patrols with their machine guns and LAPD cops with their weapons displayed openly fan out over 46 square miles and put South LA under siege. With martial law in force, a trip outside your house risks you getting arrested and wandering anywhere near a looted store or burning buildings can get you killed. Somewhere between 30 and 35,000 people in South LA take up weapons or break into businesses or set buildings to flame but the vast majority of residents do not. These other quarter million black people in South LA watch from their porches or their sidewalks or their TV screens. They see the inevitable explosion of decades of racism, abuse, and mistreatment now finding its outlet in the smoggy red skies of a city on fire. But with the guard now present on the streets in force, the violence begins to die down over the next few days the fire department once again starts to put out blazes, the looting slowly stops, and the lockdown of South L.A. eases a bit. When the National Guard begins to go on August 18th, it leaves behind the battle-scarred landscape of Los Angeles. But for the LAPD, there's still revenge to be had. As a final gesture, the cops fire a thousand rounds of ammunition at a temple for the Nation of Islam and arrest anyone they can find inside. It's a sign of things to come, for the next three decades. In the aftermath, a writer for one engineering journal was stunned at the violence in South Los Angeles and compared the damage to that of European cities after bombing raids in World War II. But novelist Chester Himes was much less shocked, writing, The only thing that surprised me about the race riots in Watts was that they waited so long to happen. The statistics that followed the violence were repeated incessantly in the media. It was the deadliest in the history of Los Angeles up to that point, with 34 people killed, most of them black, a thousand others injured, 3,000 instances of arson, and $40 million worth of property damage. Almost 4,000 people were arrested, and 60% of them were convicted. But unlike what the press said about rioters freely assaulting white motorists and shooting bystanders, the most common conviction was for trespassing, meaning these hardened criminals were found near a looted store but had no stolen loot on them. Most other people faced misdemeanor charges, with only 3% receiving more than six months in jail. This made it plain. The violence in Watts was mainly directed at property, not people, and most of those who did the actual killing had badges and uniforms. In a later poll, a majority of whites and a plurality of blacks described the violence as a riot. Though almost as many black people called it a revolt, or an insurrection, or a revolution, African-American residents pointed to a lack of good opportunities for education, jobs, and housing as the primary cause of the violence, as well as police brutality and merchant exploitation. Only a quarter said the authorities handled the violence well. By contrast, white Angelinos were impressed by Chief Parker, the National Guard, and Sam Yorty, even though the mayor was out of town for part of the time the violence erupted. 
Parker and Yorty seemed to have little clue as to the actual problems and conditions in South LA, and they denied there was any discrimination against blacks in LA. They assigned the violence to left-wing radicals and mysterious outside agitators. The press went along with these ideas, seeing the violence as the work of communist subversives, or so-called riffraff, or bad Negroes. Not all of the authorities were as willfully ignorant as William Parker and Mayor Yorty to the inequality faced by black citizens. Governor Brown appointed a body called the McCone Commission, led by a former CIA director, to study the cause of the riots. And their 101-page report identified inferior housing, schools, health care, transportation, and a lack of jobs to be the core reasons for the violence, along with the hostility between the police and the community. The report offered various recommendations to improve the lives of African Americans in the area, but as with previous official statements that identified these urban ills and suggested ways to improve them, most of the ideas of the McCone Commission were shelved, and Watts and other neighborhoods stayed poor, beleaguered, and burned out. Other authorities cared much less. The Federal Small Business Administration made just 26 loans to small businesses in the aftermath to rebuild South L.A., Many insurance companies refused to renew policies in the area after the violence and enforced an even harsher redlining on black-owned businesses. And Sam Yorty continued to spout race-baiting rhetoric on his way to being re-elected by a 20-point margin. He would serve another eight years as mayor and ensure that conditions in South L.A. got no better and in some areas became considerably worse. Another politician would profit even more from the violence in Watts. Ronald Reagan ran for California governor in 1966, denouncing beatniks, taxes, riots, and crime, and beat the incumbent Pat Brown in a historic election, one that would pave the way for the election of Richard Nixon as president two years after that, using much the same racially charged playbook. These politicians thrived off the urban violence that came to consume dozens of American cities, of which Los Angeles was one of the first and the most important. And it wasn't only important because the racial inequality in L.A. was similar to many other American cities. It was important because national politicians learned how to invent stories about urban violence to gain power, just as they had in Southern California. This became such a successful strategy, it gave rise to Richard Nixon and Ronald Reagan as the only presidents from California, and brought to a national level the racial divisions that had emerged from the embers of Watts. With black Los Angeles now sidelined and about to enter a long spiral of poverty and violence, the rest of Los Angeles closed its eyes and wallowed in the hedonism of the 1960s and 70s. In 1966, Time magazine called it the fastest growing city in the history of the world, and huge new investments in aerospace and the defense sector, along with real estate, electronics, and mass media made Los Angeles wealthy beyond imagination and into one of the largest cities in the world. But even as the majority of LA prospered, the gap in household wealth between black and white communities soared, and places with the most dire poverty and most expensive real estate sat just miles or even blocks from each other. Meanwhile, the tactics of the police only became more brutal. William Parker died a year after the insurrection in Watts, and the city council quickly affixed his name to the police headquarters where he had set up his command center. But unlike the LAPD at the time of Watts, this new LAPD that followed in Parker's wake would not lack for radios or communications equipment or bullhorns. This LAPD would be a force like few other cities had seen, 
a force with its own paramilitary troops and fleet of helicopters and even a tank. And at its head was Darrell Gates, who had been a field commander for the force in 1965. As the Watts violence unfolded, he had vowed that when the next major outbreak of urban turmoil occurred, it would be different on his watch. And he had a chance to show it, as the chief of police a quarter century later, in the next chapter of American Violence. American Violence is written and produced by J.D. Dickey, with music by Gray Neeland. For more information, visit AmericanViolencePodcast.com, which includes a list of sources for this episode, a schedule of upcoming productions, and a donation page if you'd like to contribute. For additional background on the author, go to jddickey.com. This is Episode 4, Watts. 1965, and American Violence is an independent Allied production.